Boag World is brought to you by headscape.co.uk and shopify.com, a designer-friendly e-commerce solution. For information, go to shopify.com forward slash Boagworld. On this week's show, Paul talks to Leah Bewley from Adaptive Path about user experience design, and Marcus provides some advice on warranties and other legal stuff. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Hi, Paul. How are you? Hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul and Marcus. Hello, and welcome to the first ever BoagWorld.com podcast. Boag World. Hello, Hello and welcome to the 173rd episode of BoagWorld.com, the podcast for all those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. My name's Paul Boag. And my name's Marcus Lillington. And why are you talking funny? I'm not talking funny. I'm just yes, relaxed. Yes, you are. I'm relaxed. <laughs> I'm less hyped today than I normally am. Okay. It's first thing on a Monday morning. Yeah, it really is kind of a... Yeah, and we have to get the whole show done before you go off to some poncy meeting where probably you'll go out for lunch and eat nice things. You can come too if you want. Oh, well, in that case, I'm... Hey, I'm... <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 173rd episode of Boag. There's a free lunch... Yeah. Suddenly I'm happy. Ah, oh, so easy to please. So, yeah, I just didn't realise you were just sulking. Okay, oh, no. fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so how was your weekend? You had a good one, didn't you, from what I could gather on Twitter? Yeah, it was great. Really good. Uh, on Friday, I uh, skulked off at lunchtime to go and watch Hampshire Cricket Club play Hartley Whitney Cricket Club. I hope Club. you took a half day's holiday. I probably did. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was great. You know, England stars like... You wouldn't have ever heard of. Chris Tremlett. No. Nope. Dimitri Mascarenas. No. Nope. Knocking sixes for fun over the houses. It was brilliant with about a thousand people watching. There was and some... then watched, watched all those guys again beating Lancashire on the telly yesterday whilst feeling a bit bleary in the afternoon. Oh. There was some tennis match on, wasn't there? I don't watch. I don't do tennis. You don't do tennis. Yeah. So neither of us give a monkey's ass about the tennis. <laughs> no. That's good. I didn't do that. But then on Saturday night, we played at a kind of mini festival thing oh right so the band played so you've had a full on weekend yeah well, it's great really good fun and uh, I'm going on a holiday oh I mentioned that didn't I last week did yes. just did mention. I mention oh, oh I'm going on holiday are you <laughs> on so, Friday so the listener holiday listeners will Friday. be the listener you know yeah, yeah. lowered my expectations the listeners uh, will be pleased to hear that actually Marcus won't be on next week's show or the week after or the week after. No. I won't be on the week after either. No. I no think no that, show that week then. That, no, no, no. I think, I think Ryan and Paul are doing it. Okay. Not that I've organised. That's right, yes. Both of us are off the next week, so Ryan and Paul are going to do it, and next week you're going to do it with somebody you drag the, from the floor. With a mystery <laughs> guest. Yes. If you have any preference as to who the mystery guest should be out of the Headscape staff that have already been on the show before, then I don't That's care. kind of make. Uh, yeah, Lee. Make it Lee. <laughs> no, I think we have to make it Chris. Force him on. He has been on, hasn't he? He has. So people, everyone write in and request Chris. Yeah, um, that's Chris Scott 62 on Twitter. Yeah, so all Twitter him and add him to Twitter and then insist that he comes on the show next week. He'll kill us for that. <laughs> right. Um, oh, I promised I'd do a bit of housekeeping. I don't really care. I promised. Come on, do it. <sighs> 
Summer camp, Carsonified, 20th, 21st July, Bath. I was forced at gunpoint by the guys at Carsonified. They're going to hate me now. No, um, uh, Kia from Carsonified wrote to me and asked me whether I would quickly mention a summer camp that they're running, which is quite an interesting idea, actually. So it's on the 20th and 21st in Bath. So you have to be able to get to Bath, which is um, obviously we've got thousands of listeners just in the Bath area alone. Um, so this is the best forum for which to promote the 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 uh, yeah the venue. We are a Bath exclusive podcast now. It's a nice place to go though. It is lovely if you can get down there. It's great, and it's a free little get together. Basically, I think. It's a, it sounds like a day out jolly for Carsonified, where they all get to talk about stuff together. But they're inviting eight people along that you can go free of charge if you're either a full-time student or a web entrepreneur. Whatever a web what does, entrepreneur what does that mean? means. It means that you, you fancy setting up a website. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, sure it, I'm sure it means more than that, but uh, anyway. So there's a link in the show notes at baragworld.com forward slash podcast forward slash 173. Marvellous. Where you can check that out. Did I you, mention? I'm that going you're going on, on holiday. holiday. Sweet. Yeah. This week. This week. When are you going? Friday. <laughs> so it's a four day week for you then. Yeah. And you're leaving me with shit loads of work as well. Yeah. So I have to start. Oh, no, I'm not allowed to mention the names of the projects, am I? No. No. Oh, well. Should we move on to news then? Right. Well, the big news this week. <laughs> Control your excitement, Marcus. You're going to get so excited about this. So I've just read, 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 the, read the title. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. The W3C have decided to stop development on HTML, uh, XHTML2 um, so they can put more resources into HTML5. And in a statement from the W3C, they said, Today, the directors announced that when the XHTML2 working group charter expires, as scheduled at the end of 2009, the charter will not be renewed. By doing so, and by increasing resources in the working group, um, W3C hopes to accelerate the progress of HTML5 and clarify W3C's position regarding the future of HTML. So there we go. Kind I can't make, say kind of makes sense. It does, mate. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm no expert, um, but it strikes me as a good decision for two reasons. One is that two, having two flavors of HTML is causing confusion, mm. isn't it? Really, there's overlap between the two with significant, uh, you know, a significant amount of overlap, um, and they lack a distinctive role. Second, HTML5 has gained significant momentum in terms of browser support and community engagement, um, while XHTML2, on the other hand, seems to have been floundering and nobody really cares anymore. Yeah, or at least that's the perce- uh, perception within what's going on w3c bit of a pain for us because all our html snippets are xhtml mm. so we're now going to have to change them all to be html5 that might be ooh, half a day's work for somebody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no probably be a bit more than that actually um so according to bruce lawson the decision to drop xhtml um will make little difference to most developers However, one can at least expect acceleration in the adoption of HTML5 and hopefully greater support by browser manufacturers, which is all good stuff. Yeah, could be interesting, but maybe <laughs> a little bit interesting to see what good things are available if you develop in HTML5. Well, they the likes of me, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there are we, there's some um, there's all kinds of various bits and bobs that are currently being uh, proposed. One of the things is that you'll add new a couple of a few new tags, things like he, um, you know header 
and um, I can't remember them now, section, and I think there's navigation is another one. So it means that you can imagine Google being able to draw out the whole navigation because it knows where the navigation sure. is. in the. So there's things like that. Um, there was um, some kind of inbuilt tags. Rather than using the embed and object tags, there's now video and audio. But I think I read just before we came on this show, so I haven't looked at it properly, mm. that that, video, that they've gone away, which is weird. So I need to look into that a little bit more. So don't hold me to that, dear listener, okay. um, because I might be just making it up. But that's what I thought I saw before I came in. That's good, though. Make, make news up. We could be like a newspaper then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's um, that story. Um, the next one is, is something I spotted uh, on Twitter. Paul Annette from Clear Left um, mentioned this last week on Twitter. And it is a collection of links to Photoshop files containing various UI elements for all the major browsers. Um, so the files contain things like browser windows, drop-down boxes, radio buttons, um, user interface elements, that kind of stuff. Which is really useful if you're a web designer mocking up a web page and you've got a form or you want to show the browser or whatever. Mm-hmm. And say he's having to do screen grabs and isolate each of the elements manually. You can just download all these Photoshop documents and you've got it. However, this resource is just one of those made available on this particular website, which is the Designer's Toolbox. And they've got some really useful stuff on there that you might want to check out. Other resources include information on the different browsers' web safe areas. So what they mean by that is... If the browser is running full screen, um, then, you know, how much space does the browser take up and how much is left over at different resolutions and that kind of thing. It's Mm. got um, loads, a big kind of um, uh, cheat sheet, I guess is the best word, of HTML character encoding. So if you want to know, you know, how to character encode an ampersand, for example, you can do that there um it's got standard web banner sizes which is quite useful if you ever have to do web banners it's got iphone gui elements for mocking up iphone applications um list of web safe fonts and also a kind of latin generator for dummy text so a useful resource that it's also got mm. stuff for print designers if you do a bit of print as well um impressive site definitely worth checking out so check out that one i think it's been around for ages but i've only spotted it is it raining? It yeah, is. Big time raining. My word. Ooh. There we go. Well, the, the ground needs it. Hey. Or some such crap. <laughs> Farmers will be pleased. That's what you My garden say. needs it. Oh, well. My garden doesn't because it's already dead. <laughs> dead garden. Did <laughs> I tell you that our oak tree is dying? Yes. Wow. What was the decision? Uh, still don't know. Hey, <laughs> this involves the council. Right. Right. But Paul next. the tree murderer. I didn't murder it. That's my fault. Been- oh, that's right. You're going to put it out of its misery, aren't you? Yes. Right. Uh, next story. Smashing Magazine has released best practices for effective design of About Me pages. Um, yeah. Me. About me. I'm so special. <laughs> the post first caught my, caught my attention because About Us pages are so often neglected. Um, as this article says, the About Me page is one of the most overlooked pages in development and one of the highest ranked pages on many websites. That's true. Um, I get the feeling that many website owners don't really know why they have About Us pages. They feel obliged to have them because everybody else does, but fail to really understand their role, I guess. Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure that this article provides any answers, which is good. What I tend to find About Us pages, I want to go... And not necessarily see pictures of people, although that's good, but to see 
people's names and who they are. Try and get an insight as to who the people behind the company. Yes. So many times you go to About Us pages and it's just the, yes. the mission our statement dribble. Our company was founded in 1904 <laughs> and we yeah. believe in... Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, this. to be honest, the reason I don't think necessarily this this article is going to provide answers is it focuses on the about pages of web designers, hence about me pages rather than about us pages. Yeah. Um, rather than more general websites. But well, was, at least with a, a, a single, uh, you know, a sort of blog, blogger type about us, about yeah. me page. At least you're going to get, get the, yeah, exactly. decent information. Yeah. Um, it show, it also, it shows a lot of examples while providing really little in terms of best practice. That said, it has some stunning about pages and so it's definitely worth a read. They really are very inspiring, and some of them are beautifully designed as well. Um, so it might hopefully inspire you into sorting out your own about page, either on your corporate website or on your personal website. Right, uh, uh, the next one's an interesting one. Um, it kind of... I looked at this. Yeah, it's quite interesting, really. Mm. Uh, it's funny about as human beings, we've got this t- a tendency to accept the status quo. So even if we think something's a bad idea, we often fail to speak up. Um, because surely there must be a good reason why it's done that way. Hmm. Um, and one example of this for me is password masking, which has um, come up this week. This is the practice whereby content entered into a password field is blanked out for security reasons. And although I understand the logic of this, it's always struck me um, as a significant usability and accessibility issue. However, despite that, I've never actually challenged the practice. Do you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's weird, isn't it? It's, but well, yeah, yeah. The reason being, you think, well, what if someone's looking over my shoulder? You know, yeah, what, but-, <laughs> uh, but it's also it's more. Than, uh, for, I think it's more than that. It's like, well, it's built into browsers, so it must be right. Clever people must have thought about this. And- yeah, well, I think the, uh, the way I think about it is that well, when they were thinking about it. They thought, well, what if someone's looking yeah. at that? that yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, that's the So you, you just kind of go, well, that's fine then. Yeah, and you don't really challenge it any more than that. But Jacob Nielsen has. Because when I first got the Mac, and it gives you the opportunity to kind of tick a box so you can see the passwords. It's Does like, it? Yeah. I didn't know I did that. No? No. Oh, I'll have to find that, because I like being able to see passwords. Yeah, you can just tick the box. I think it's not general it's not global setting it's right. like for each time one comes up you can, uh, you can click to okay. look on it oh right but that's good and that's really interesting mm. that's it, it, well let's let's carry on with this story so jacob nielsen has um released a post called stop password masking and he writes usability suffers when users type in passwords and the only feedback they get is a row of bullets typically masking passwords doesn't even cre- increase a security but it does cost you um, business due to login failures. Mm. Password masking has become um, common for no other reason than it's easy to do and it's the default in the web's early days. And I have to say, I couldn't agree more. I believe that the security concerns are massively overrated and the usability issues are largely ignored. Unsurprisingly, Jacob is coming from some criticism um, uh, for what appears to be his cavalier attitude towards security. Christian Hellman writes, as a frequent traveller, I'm constantly seeing people um, log in to websites in hotel lobbies when they check in uh, for their flights, for example, or enter the bonus miles account details um, in internet cafes or when using the lo- laptop in a public space. I read that really badly, basically mm-hmm. saying there are situations. However, Jacob does address this, as does apparently the Mac operating system. I never realised that. Mm-hmm. He writes, yes, yeah, some users... Um, truly are at risk um, of having bystanders spy on their passwords 
so, bystanders. Standards. <laughs> bystanders. Yes. Such as when they're using internet cafes. It's therefore worth offering them a checkbox to have their passwords masked for high risk applications such as bank accounts. Um, you might even check this box by default oh, when you've got mm. bank accounts. I'm really, really bad. <laughs> In case where there is tension between security and usability, sometimes security should win. And again, I agree. I think that's great. You know, too many, too often password masking is done without thinking. Um, and when a user registered for a site containing little um, personal information and no financial details, why should they have to enter the password twice simply because... Um, they cannot see it being typed, you know, right the first time. It's absurd. It's stupid. So well, what, the, what, the thing that annoys me is when certain sites force you to have ten character passwords with at least one. You know, yeah. If uh, I want an insecure password, that's my my problem. choice. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Really, really annoys me. Yeah. So um, there you go. Um, that's <laughs> that's a, a whole interesting debate, and I'm sure lots of people will disagree with Jacob and with myself. Um, but well, yeah, to have the choice is the right. I, yes, I, I, I think. I mean, take for example Wiltshire Farm Foods. Yeah, you know, elderly audience have got motor skill problems. Are really unconfident and not confident in the internet, and it is a major problem. So all we need to do is just you know have a little link next to it that you know hides or shows the password, and they'd be sorted. Yeah. So I think we'll do that. Okay. So that's the news. Marvellous. So what we've got next is an interview with um, Leah Burley. Bewley. Bewley. I always want to say Burley. It's got no R in it. Mm. Leah Bewley. As in the places where cars are kept. Yeah. Not spelt the same though. No. But uh, let's not go down that really boring route. That would be very (laughs) boring. So Leah from Adaptive Path um, is going to share some thoughts on UX design. We mentioned it. It's funny, isn't it? Because... I talked last week in the show about it and then realised we hadn't done the interview and it came up this week as the interview. There you go. Okay, so I have uh, Leah Bewley joining me t- today from Adaptive Path. Great to have you on the show, Leah. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Thanks, Paul. I'm excited to be here. So I heard you this year at South by Southwest talking about um, UX Teams of One, which I have to say was the highlight of uh, my South by Southwest. And I'm not just sucking up. It really was uh, the most (laughs) enjoyable one. You might just be sucking up, but I'll take it. Yeah, just go with it. Go with the flow. (laughs) So uh, the reason that it was was so... um, inspiring i think from my point of view was that the the company that we run um headscape is uh, for for the longest time was a distributed company um and, and we then came together and started having an office and but i don't think we've really kind of got our heads around the advantages of all being in an office together um so all of your talking about brainstorming and stuff like that was you know hugely kind of Blindingly obvious, but, you know, revolutionary at the same time. It was a mm-hmm. it was a light bulb moment for me. So thank you very much for that. Oh, my pleasure. So I thought let's share some of that um, uh, stuff that you covered at South By um, with the listeners of Biag World, because I know that there's a lot of people out there that um, maybe are open to a new approach to the way that they're handling design and user interface um, and usability and all of that kind of thing. So um let's uh let's kick off by by talking about and perhaps defining design um as you see it because you obviously don't see design purely as the aesthetics of a site um and as you were talking you obviously had a much bigger role in mind for what you would consider a designer so tell us a little bit about that yeah well um 
I'd say the first caveat that I should probably make is that I am not a trained designer. Okay. Uh, I have an information science background and have done uh, years of work as a developer. So um, you should take everything I say with a grain of salt. But uh, I think that what's interesting from my perspective is that a lot of people in our field are actually not trained designers, but they're mm-hmm. doing design work. Yeah. So um, recognizing that and understanding essentially the sort of process of design and how anybody can do it is, I think, an important thing. Um, and and for me, the way that I would uh, define design is basically anybody who's taking a known problem and uh, kind of conscientiously reframing it, uh, often with the use of constraints. So um, in, in my mind, design is actually, I think, much more of a process whereby something new emerges uh, as opposed to an outcome that somebody produces. Um, and the designer, the role of the designer, whoever's doing the design work, is to shepherd that process, basically. Mm. Just that this is a kind of a complete tangent, really, but it, it was something <laughs> that, that came up in, in your talk, and um, I, I, I was fascinated by it and wanted to know a little bit more about it. You talked in your, in your presentation about Forrester's CX model, which, mm-hmm. which I hadn't come across that description of it. I've, I've heard a kind of similar... Um, similar kind of approach used within sales as, as the kind of sales technique. But perhaps could, yeah. you, could you explain what that model is and, and, and why you brought it up in your, in your presentation? Sure, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, there's a report that Forrester put out um, called the Customer Experience Journey. Uh, it's written by a guy named Bruce Temkin who also actually has a, an excellent blog called Experience Matters, which writes a lot about, mm. or he writes a lot about user experience from the, um, the kind of business person's perspective. So check it out if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing is that um, Bruce has written a lot about experience-based differentiation for companies, which is basically just the idea that you have a better user experience and you therefore have a better kind of product. Um, and evidently his his writing about experience-based definition has been one of some of their most popular reports, which um, sort of suggests that executives recognize the customer experience is really critical to their success and that many of them are offering a subpar experience right now. Um, so then in this customer experience journey, Bruce essentially explains how any organization can build a strong customer experience practice. Um, and the report has a lot of recommendations about corporate culture and uh, employee training and how to deal with trade-offs. But in particular, there's there's a sort of a model with five steps for the evolution of customer experience in an organization. And it's 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 great. It's like it's beautifully simple, but it's also deceptively simple at the same time. Yeah. Um, the five steps are uh, the first step is is interested basically. So at that point, custom or organizations are sort of aware that um, that user experience or customer experience is a is something that they should be thinking about, but they haven't really done anything about it yet. Um, at the second step, uh, they get invested, which means that they basically hire somebody to do some work, but it tends to be someone who's at a pretty low level. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the third step, they become committed, which means that they have uh, sort of someone who's an executive who has responsibility for the outcome of the, that user experience work. Uh, at the fourth step, they become engaged, which means that at a very high level, at sort of an organizational initiatives level, they, um, user experience is sort of a priority and then the fifth step, the nirvana of customer experience, is that they become that it, it becomes sort of so embedded in the fabric of the organization that it's it's kind of like their first principles. It's everything we do. They don't have to be. It doesn't have to be explicitly called out as like an act, you know, a project to make the website more user friendly or a project to make our product, you know, less less funky to hold or whatever. Mm. So um, 
that's the model. But what fascinates me and, and kind of frustrates me a little bit about it is that it makes it seem so linear. Like, like you can just put kind of one foot in front of the other and eventually over time you'll reach stage five. Um, and it's, it's, I think there's different stages are tricky for different reasons. I think the leap from having lower level user experience people to executive user experience people can be awkward for organizations for a lot of reasons. Um, and what I've seen just in my personal experience is that companies have, it's not like they, they start out uh, with one user experience person and then it grows and grows and grows and by the end they have a team. What happens is I think that there are sort of various kind of epics in the approach to user experience. So you sometimes it's big and they'll hire sort of big staff for it and then in lean times or some executive goes away and then that staff will shrink and then some, some other champion will come along and then they'll want to bring it back. And if you're on, I've been in situations where I'm, I'm a kind of user experience team of one or even when I'm on a team of user experience professionals and you learn that there was a user experience practice several years ago and that it went away and, and it's like, it's like discovering cave paintings or hill dwellings or something. You realize that there have been other people who've come before you and you're like, why did they go away? What happened? Um, so that leads to, I think, a really core belief that I have about user experience practice, which is that it's not built by delivering killer projects and sort of building on top of killer projects one by one, but it's built through relationships mm. and patience and mutual respect over time. And that it's about really um, sort of investing the time to actually get to know the people who, who need to work with the, with you as a user experience professional, um, investing the time to understand their concerns and their objectives and to take those things seriously and to, to work with them as a designer to facilitate facilitate sort of them achieving their goals as well as you achieving your goals, which I know sounds touchy feely, but I think it's, it's just in my personal experience, I think that works well, has worked well for me. I think it's very true as well. I mean, I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this interview that maybe, uh, you know, feel like they're, they're stuck on one of those stages and, and can't yeah. progress things and can't move forward. You know, whether they're, you know, responsible for their website within their organization, whether they're an internal web designer or whatever else, and yeah. and it's very easy to become kind of bitter and angry and become the no person with the organization that that is constantly you know fighting against the system but yeah. actually building the relationships is the way to progress things forward and you know I've, i work do a lot of work in large higher education and public sector organizations that have huge amounts of bureaucracy and it, mm. it's ultimately the relationship and carrying people with you that that enables you to move things forward yeah, I and I, I I absolutely agree, and I think it's um, it's particularly interesting talking to you as someone who's worked in big bureaucracies because those are the hardest places to do it. I think it's just mm. you, it, the the bureaucracy itself can add an extra layer of frustration that that um, you know is on top of the the initial frustration that we I think we often feel as user experience people just trying to communicate why this new area is important. Mm. So it's it's very easy to kind of get embittered, and I. Yeah, I mean, I think in my own personal experience, I've seen that too. And the trick is is to um, to make yourself feel a little bit less alone. And the, the challenge for that is that if you're a user experience team of one, or you don't have a big group, you're you know you don't have colleagues who have the same discipline as you. So you kind of have to find a way to make friends with the non-user experience people that you work with, and and to turn turn them into colleagues and to turn them into allies. And and that I. 
I believe actually you do through soft skills much more than design skills on mm-hmm. some level. And I think the dirty secret of design is that it's like it's fifty percent soft skills, and then the rest is design. And if you can if you can learn to sort of listen well to people and to ask more questions than you answer, and to I don't know, be a fun lunch date. I think those are the things that actually will, will serve you very well in this line of business. Yeah, to- totally agree. It's really interesting to hear you say that because, yeah, really good, really good. Um, let's move on before I start ranting yeah. about that particular subject. <laughs> um, let's talk about adaptive path and, and the process to design that you guys take. I mean, you know, obviously you guys produce some superb work um, and I'm really interested um, in the little glimpse that you gave us in your presentation at South by of that process and, mm-hmm. and how you go about doing things. So maybe you could kind of summarize that for the listener. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I think in the, in a nutshell, it's a mess. It's a, just a total mess. Um, and I'm serious about that. It's a mess. <laughs> it's a messy process. And, and, uh, that's part of the magic actually. Um, one, a uh, little uh, secret of adaptive path and its design process is that we don't actually have a set design process, unlike some other uh, uh, companies in this field, you know, who will often have like the discovery and then the research and then the kind of what, whatever phases we don't really have a, a sort of a set process. What we do is we kind of custom design each project to match the problem that the customers have. Um, but uh even so, I think most projects tend to involve at least three things in, in some kind of configuration uh, to one another. Um, and those three things would be, uh, one, kind of trying to understand the business environment in which the project has to succeed. Uh, two, trying to understand the, the user's context in which the product is going to be actually used in the end. Mm-hmm. And then the third part and the big the thing that I talked about a lot at South by Southwest is the just design exploration uh, and when I say exploration, I'm, I use that word uh, very deliberately because we try to treat it uh, as um, a kind of a process that has to widen before it can get narrow. We really we try to sort of uh, approach design as 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 actually a kind of um, exploring a new you know field essentially. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of the sort of those three prongs, understanding the business problem is it ends up being really just a lot of honestly trying to um, ask the hard questions of our customers in a way that will help them to um, be open to the answers. It's one of the kind of the, the idea of the philosophies of adaptive path is that we encourage our clients to reframe everything or rethink everything. And, and so that's actually a really great uh, foundation for then coming back to them and saying, in terms of the design approach that we're going to take, we're going to, to um, to really explore wide, explore explore really broadly, and and, and present some ideas to you that maybe uh, maybe uh, push further than you might be thinking of pushing right now. But we do that so that we can potentially then adjust those ideas so that they're sort of right sized for the um, the constraints and the sort of objectives that you have right now. Um, and so the design exploration that particular process, um, we tend to. Well, it's pretty basic. I mean, I think we start out and we just, we sort of force ourselves to actually spend some dedicated time uh, coming up with a lot of different ideas. And obviously that is informed by um, by user research, which is the that sort of second item that I just mentioned. So we try to sort of start by going into the field and to observing, to observe users in context and to try to get as much information as we possibly can about not just what they kind of want to do with uh, the product, but also the circumstances of their life 
uh, in, at the point at which they're going to use the product. Because one of the things that we find is that people are are always more distracted and busy and multitasking than we think they are. So really understanding the nature of that helps us to say, okay, now that we're going to sit down and we're going to explore the designs for this for this product, what are the constraints that we know our users have and what are the constraints that we know our business has? And then um, the constraints become just an, a useful device in, in the sort of process of, of uh, design exploration um, in that you can say, well, if we know that... Uh, the um, this person who's going to be using this product will in, will also have you know four other applications open on their desk at the same time or fourteen other applications or forty. Um, how do we design something that is sort of optimized for uh, for minimal attention or that's optimized for sort of quick hit interaction? And so that then that um, that little kind of nugget uh, becomes a thing to design with. So like let's design the screen that is is sort of the ideal starting point for somebody who has you know ten seconds to do something. Um, but the trick is, I think, that you can't just let yourself stop with those known constraints. Say, like, okay, we've designed the screen for 10 seconds of interaction. We're done with it. Um, if we're truly delivering on our promise of helping our clients kind of rethink everything, um, we need to uh, explore beyond that, explore even sort of more widely beyond that. So then we use a lot of other devices that uh, kind of help us brainstorm just in, in really, really different ways. Um this is a, a kind of a funny example, but I'll, I'll bring it up because it illustrates, I think, really nicely how different kinds of tools will help you brainstorm in different ways. Um, we did a project uh, not long ago where we wanted to uh, kind of rethink um, mobile devices and how we sort of work with them in the world. And so in order to force ourselves to rethink that, we actually did an exercise where we... Um, we went out into the world with uh, different kinds of physical objects that weren't shaped like mobile phones that were shaped like pencils and magnifying glasses and wire whisks and, and then okay. and pretended that those things were mobile phones and figured out and sort of imagined what would we possibly want to do with something like that. Um, and it's, it's just great because the, these simple devices sort of help you to re to just forget your assumptions. We have so many assumptions about what a thing has to be. And the trick as a good designer, I think is to force yourself to, um, to break those assumptions, at least for a little bit of time, so that you can allow your creative process to uh, suggest new ideas to you. Mm. I mean, it's really interesting. It's fascinating to hear you that you're doing that kind of stuff. But I'm sitting here thinking, you know, there are going to be people listening to this show that, mm. you know, their design process may consist of, you know, understanding the business objectives, understanding users' needs, and, and, pu- and putting a bit of time into that, and then. They launch Photoshop or they launch Fireworks yep. and they're sitting there and they do the design. Yeah. Um, and, and you're coming along and talking about, you know, going out with whisks and, and <laughs> you know, you're talking about coming up with loads of ideas. Yeah. And they're just thinking that, you know, they're that's so divorced from the way that they're currently working that it's kind of quite hard to imagine that transition. Well, I don't think it has to be. I think that's the, what's interesting. And that's what I try to talk about a little bit at South by Southwest, which is that you may not be uh, on an adventure to re-envision the, the sort of mobile experience, but that there are some pretty basic techniques that I think we can employ, even when we're sitting at our desk, even when we're in front of our computers, to help us uh, to think more broadly in that way. And so some of the things that I've talked about, um, they're really basic. They're almost, they're almost like hacks. They're, you could think of them as design hacks if you mm-hmm. wanted to. One is um, is essentially stealing ideas, stealing inspiration from the visual sort of uh, 
visual sources that you encounter every day. So one idea that I really believe very strongly in is keeping an inspiration library. Yeah. So if you're, if you're, uh, you know, using the web and you see something that seems like an interesting design to you, take a screenshot of it, put it in some place where you store those things. And then when it's time to start designing, um, flip through that thing, flip through your inspiration library and see if there's anything that kind of inspires you in a way that you wouldn't expect. Um, and if that's not, I think, on the level of taking a wire whisk out into the world to redefine <laughs> a phone. But if you're if you're designing a, uh, a kind of a news portal and you happen to see a guided wizard that, you know, screenshot that has some really interesting uh, kind of treatment of health information and then you realize, like, oh, call-out boxes could work in a really interesting way in my news portal. Um, that's the sort of the level of uh, kind of forcing yourself to think in a, a kind of a different way or a more broad way. I also think that um, that just playing with word associations is, is actually so mm-hmm. kind of beneficial in terms of talking about, well, what do we want this thing to feel like? Or what if it felt like, you know, this plus that? And then actually just doing a quick sketch of what that would actually uh, mean or look like. Um, the the interesting thing is, I think that I, I've worked with classically trained designers who would probably most certainly call me a design hack, but who would say that there is one there is one kind of optimal way to to design a, a, a you know a web page or to design a sort of software that essentially takes the top priority into consideration and then the second, you know, kind of priority and then third priority and then lays out the page accordingly. So people notice the top thing first and the second thing second mm-hmm. and the third thing third. But I think that the way that metaphor sort of works on us as human beings is actually much more interesting and it can, it can create, um, it can make the experience of using uh, a product or a website feel like something really pungent that isn't just actually about information processing it's it's about it's about a user experience um at, at uh, the ia summit uh cindy chastain who's a, an information architect based out of new york city did a presentation on uh using uh themes in design and the way that she described these themes was um basically that you you sort of create a little story or create several little stories for what the design sort of could be about and that depending on the story you take the way that you actually design that thing will be really really different and the example that she gave was she did a website for um for a woman who uh wrote all of these soap operas in the united states that had the soap opera that has been popular for decades and decades she's the primary writer on it mm-hmm. and the website is for fans of this soap opera to go and and see all of these these, you know, sort of pre-recorded or these old recordings of the soap opera. But in figuring out um, what experience, essentially, they wanted to provide for for this product, they created three different themes. And one theme was, like, the story of a writer, which was basically about the woman who wrote the soap opera. And the other theme was uh, a love affair with a soap opera, which was basically about the kind of fan experience. And the third was, like, 40 decades of television or something, or four decades of television, which is basically about the kind of TV creation process. Mm -hmm. And depending on which theme or which story you wanted to sort of go with, it would create a very, very different design. And in fact, they did pick one design that ended up being very sort of specific and tangible and allowed them to design a a really kind of meaningful sort of metaphorical experience for the people who used it. But you have to imagine that as an end user, going into a website that tells you about the story of a writer is going to be very different than a website that tells mm-hmm. the, that immerses you in the feeling of being a soap opera fan. And and I think when I so I, I love that example because I think that shows really nicely how just 
choosing metaphors and choosing sort of inspiration and choosing examples can can encourage a whole sort of world of brainstorming in, in various possible directions. Mm. I'd I, I certainly warmed very um, very much to this principle of of generating large number of uh, ideas and and the idea of of stepping away from your computer and you talked about having sheets of uh, mm. which forced you to do like six wire you know different yeah. mockups on a single page and 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 you know you talked about overcoming that that thing of running out of steam you know i've done two or three designs now what do i do kind of thing so uh, all of that was was really interesting and the idea of including other people in that process you're not working in isolation and i went back and we did this and, and we sat down and i got uh i got developer in the room i got the project manager i got lots of different people in and we did we did this and we we had a really productive day and got loads done and then it occurred to me that i'd got five people sitting in a room for a day and that's five man days worth of work ah. uh, and you suddenly go crap that's you know that's out of our budget that's a lot you know yeah uh, it, it suddenly you started going into the the kind of practical mentality of you know is this a cost effective way of doing things should we be working like this uh, yeah. I'm interested in your thoughts on that well I, I it's interesting actually I hear this concern a lot from people and I'm fascinated to hear that you did it and that you did it for a day which I, I want to hear more details about that later on but um <laughs> but I think the the thing is I don't think it has to take a day and I think that that um the, the sort of concern that it will be a, a vast investment of time for everybody is is isn't. I mean, it's a it's a real concern, but I think it's something that can be managed. Um, I've actually got had some pretty productive workshops that are an hour long or two hours long. And if you if you bring you know five people in for an hour or two, it's it's obviously still you know uh, five or ten hours, but it's not a, a week of man hours necessarily. Yeah. So I think that you actually need to be. I think that the key is to be very. Um, careful about scheduling working sessions that are a little bit uh, fixed in time and that have kind of clear goals and clear endpoints and and to just um, to constrain it a little bit and and I actually personally believe that constraining time is another uh, benefit in the brainstorming process mm. um, particularly when you get you know people who aren't necessarily usually involved in designing uh, it can be very um, scary to jump right in kind of developing ideas and hard actually and so i think what happens a lot in a group like that is people sit around and talk about the ideas for a while and then maybe once they you know get warmed up and have a cookie or a muffin or something and they feel like they're casual then they'll start sketching Mm. and um you don't need that time that's just throat clearing what you what you can do is you can uh sort of give them structured activities that will get them to put their ideas on paper immediately and that will have the same sort of net effect um when we do uh workshops with folks uh we do these sort of template based workshops and we give them literally five minutes or seven minutes to sort of sketch out all their ideas Mm. and maybe we'll do a couple rounds of that but the beautiful part is when you have five minutes you just don't even have enough time to think about what it is you want to do you just start drawing and it and it it sort of it it circumvents the throat clearing that happens in a in the sort of longer meetings um and templates i think are really really helpful actually in in those workshops particularly because people People are funny, you know. We we really like to um, accomplish tasks, <laughs> and if you put something in front of us that's kind of well defined and has a, a sort of a clear end point, I, I think our impulse is just to do it and kind of get it, get it over with. So, if you give someone a template that 
it helps them to sort of say, like, draw an idea for what you think should happen in the system, explain what, you know, the important sort of aspects of that idea are, and tell me another product in the world that it's kind of like. Um, and then you tell, they have, tell them they have five minutes to do it. I, you'd be kind of amazed how quickly people can kind of crank out a lot of ideas. And then you do a couple rounds of that. And um, in a structure like that, you can really get a lot out in an mm. hour or two hours. Mm. I mean, you, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, we made, you know, the first time we did this, we made a lot of mistakes and there was a lot of kind of, oh, I don't know whether I'm kind of comfortable with this. There was a lot mm -hmm. of preamble and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And also, we just got tied out. You know, yeah. there's there's only so long you can do something like that. Now, admittedly, alongside that, we were doing things like, uh, you know, it was kind of a kickoff meeting as well. And we were kind mm -hmm. of, um, you know, introducing the project to some of the people in the room and, and that kind of thing. But to be honest, putting it all together in one big meeting was was too much. We would have been better yeah. off splitting that over a period of time. Uh, there were there were reasons why it, we had to do it that way because uh, one of the guys isn't local and he was down and but yeah. it, it, it did kind of get me thinking about this you know the amount of time but like you say if you have structured activities and you set time limits on it actually that's beneficial um yeah, uh, yeah. I, but, I, but i also i actually i think it's probably important to acknowledge uh, the point that you make which is that this it does there is time there is a time commitment in working this way and it's not like it's not like you can squeeze it in uh, and still do everything in the way that you've already been doing it. I mean, it's you, it, it, there's an actual time commitment to move in this way. Um, we often at Adaptive Path will do uh, kind of week-long design sprints where we essentially we, we, we do a lot of the kind of brainstorming activities that uh, we've been talking about in this conversation uh, in just in the first part of the week, and then we'll actually sort of produce wireframes by the end of the week. Uh, and, and it's... It's really aggressive and it's it, it's incredibly productive. It produces a lot of, of work, but you cannot do anything else during that week. There's just there's no way. So you sometimes you have to make time to move quickly. And I um, think I mean ultimately you get you get the time you're investing back in you know things like having a, de a developer sitting in the room. You know yeah. is going to avoid problems later down the line where yeah. you know he suddenly turns around and says, "Hang on a minute, you come up with this in the design and we can't implement that or you know, or something is suggested at these early stage, but because the project manager isn't there, it gets lost in the system and all the rest of it. So I think, I think you get the, it just feels like a lot up front, I think is the, is probably the best way of describing yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, I think it's important, particularly, you know, if you're a team of one or if you're working in an organization where you don't have a lot of support as the user experience person and where they may not have a lot of, um, Comfort where, where, the, where your colleagues may not necessarily have a lot of experience or comfort or familiarity with design. Um, it's important to go uh, to sort of take baby steps with some of this stuff. Mm. I think that you, um, rather than sort of <laughs> coming in and you're there for a little while and you realize like, okay, this isn't quite working. Let's let's change everything and have a two day offsite and like, get executives to support all this. <laughs> that might be a little bit ambitious, yeah. but. Um, but what might be a little bit more feasible is to sort of talk to the team and say, I feel like there are some ideas that we all have that um, that maybe, you know, it would just be good to kind of get out and so that we can actually uh, consider them sort of directly and talk about what's appropriate or not for the product. Could we schedule an hour and a half workshop? Um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll structure it. Don't worry. You don't need to do anything. Just come with your, you know, come with yourself and a pencil in your hand and I'll give you cookies and it'll be fun. And, and then that's kind of like a starting point to get people in and get them engaged in the activity. And what I find is that when you give people 
a little bit of a taste of this and they see that it can be so productive, they become much more enthusiastic about mm. participating and, and making time for it later on. Mm. Um, so particularly if, you know, anybody who's listening to this conversation is, 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 is a team of one or is, is working or, or, you know, is even like maybe a freelancer with a new, with an organization they don't have a really established relationship with, I'd say start out with baby steps um, and and structure structure a, a workshop in a way that will actually help the participants to see the effects of it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we've talked a lot about kind of generating a lot of ideas, um, and, you know, and certainly when we 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 gave this a go, we ended up with loads of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we probably need to, to to end this interview by kind of going. Well, now what? <laughs> You've got this mm-hmm. big pile of ideas. How do you kind of refine them down into what you're going to actually use? Yeah, uh, that is the hard, that's always the, the, the hardest part of the process, actually, or it's, or an, and not at the same time. I think what will happen is there will be a couple of ideas that will be really exciting, and everybody will sort of know it. And I don't know if that kind of coalesces with your experience. Mm. But the trick is that even though some ideas seem like, whoa, that's pretty cool, or wow, that would be kind of awesome if we built that, uh, it is a very legitimate question of whether that's actually appropriate, uh, appropriate for the business needs that are driving the, the, mm. the, the product, appropriate for the user's needs. Um, and and for that, I think, in the end, it ends up being a lot of kind of compromise, actually. But um, in order to know sort of where you where where it makes sense to compromise and where it doesn't make sense to compromise, I think it can be really critical to have a well-articulated statement of what experience you're trying to produce. Yeah. Um, we use uh, design principles at Adaptive Path, which I know a lot of folks uh, in the field use. But um, for us, we, we try to essentially create five to seven short kind of succinct statements of what the experience of the product should be. Um, and it, doing that then helps us to sort of look at all those ideas and say, like, this is a this is the coolest, most web 2.0 interface I ever saw, but it doesn't support our design principles. So mm. it's it's probably out the door. Um, and uh, the key to design principles is that they're not, they're, it's not a statement of what the functionality of your system is. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not like sort of brand attributes. It's. It really needs to be something that kind of explicitly, um, kind of evokes what the experience is going to feel like. So, uh, like TiVo has some great design principles. Or early on when they were developing their product, they they um, created some statements of what they wanted the product to be. And I, you can even when you use TiVo now, I think you can really see a reflection of that. Um, their design principles were. It's entertainment, stupid. Mm. Uh, it's TV, stupid. Um, it's video, damn it. Uh, everything is smooth and gentle. Uh, no modality or deep hierarchy. Uh, respect the viewer's privacy. Like, these are all things that they're not quite features and functionality, although some of them allude to it, and they're not quite brand statements, although there's certainly a lot of brand personality expressed in them, but they, they sort of describe what the experience of, of using TiVo should feel like, and mm. it's, it's kind of works well in that respect. Mm, excellent that that's been so useful i could carry on talking for, for hours about this particular subject um but uh, that's certainly a brilliant introduction and i would encourage people to to check out um the the slides that you produce for that presentation which are up on SlideShare. um if you search for ux team of one you'll find them no doubt thank you very much for coming on the show leah and uh, hopefully we'll get back get you on again in the future to talk about other <laughs> related issues and we can start this whole conversation all over Ooh, again wonderful. that sounds great thank you so much paul i really enjoyed it good to talk to you bye-bye take care bye now
So we've got a listener question this week. Yes. Um, which Marcus is going to answer. Have we not covered all this stuff a hundred times before? We've never actually covered warranties. Have we so not? If you want to go make a cup of tea, now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul's Paul, it was quite funny. Paul said uh, in an email earlier this week. Uh, so yeah, that interesting thing about uh, you know audio on the on the internet. I'm thinking I haven't answered anything about audio on the internet. It's warranties. Oh, well, you, you only talk about two things. <laughs> it's either audio or I'm it's just so dull. You are I? dull, dull, yeah. dull, dull. I talk. About you need all. to branch out three things. Oh, cricket uh, as well. Uh, Sorry, I forgot cricket. Four things. <laughs> um, anyway, right. So th- this question from Andy Wicks. Uh, I'm really interested in how you draw up a warranty regarding a website and what you cover and for how long. We are constantly played with clients expecting us to continue to support their site months after completion, even though they refuse to pay a support fee. There seems to be an expectation that a site should never develop a problem, never break when new browsers are released and never cause issues, even though we all know that sometimes issues arise from hosts that we tend to end up, uh, that we end up attending to on their behalf. Mm -hmm. So hosting companies. You can't read either. No, that was sentence too long. I blame Andy. Yeah, let's blame Uh, Andy. Well, well, anyway, um, I agree with, um, uh, with you that. That the most vital thing is a firm agreement between agency and client at the outset as to exactly what each party expects from the other. But I'm keen to learn what you expect to find in a standard warranty agreement, what's covered, what length of time is suitable as part of the build fee. <laughs> Slightly, how long is a piece of string, I grant you, but something I know my team and friend find a constantly challenging topic. There we go. Well done, Marcus. Ooh, right, I'm glad go. I didn't have to read that. And the next thing I've got to read is even worse. So this is what we include as part of all of our contracts. Oh, blooming heck. This is going to be like the trickle. Con- yes. The contractor, Headscape, in this particular case, warrants that all the deliverables shall collectively provide the functionality specified in the statement of work. For a twelve month, uh, for a period of twelve months from the date of acceptance by the client of the final deliverable, the contractor shall promptly remedy at the contractor's own cost any such compliance of the deliverables, non-compliance of the deliverables, sorry, with the specifications set out in the statement of work or such non-performance of the site. So, what does that mean then, Paul? It's like we, <laughs> we go on, we hark on on this show about you know plain English, well written copy, and then we put that out. That's mm. legalese at its best. Isn't of course, it? it is. Yes, but basically, what it means is, I'll tell you what it means. It means that if the uh, for twelve months after the website has gone live, yep. or they've accepted or whatever, we have to fix at our own expense anything that breaks on the website. In other words, but that wouldn't include, you know, I don't know, if a new browser came out, we wouldn't fix it, would we? Um, I'll come on to that. Okay. Basically, that we'll fix any genuine bugs for free on a site that we've developed within 12 months of the go-live date, pretty much. Um, But there are two sort of key issues with this that can crop up. Okay. First one is kind of interpretation taking my last example a last sentence as an example what does genuine bugs mean yeah uh if it's a cms job then some kind of functionality defect with say a form not submitting properly would definitely fit that description yes. uh but as andy mentions what about rendering bugs in new browsers yeah um the legalese states that we will fix bugs within the specification of the statement of work which right is kind of you know the description of the job um, new browsers aren't included in that. Yeah. 
Um, but I take the uh, this sort of line that common sense tends to come to the forefront in situations like this. Yeah. Um, if the fix will take a tiny amount of time, and at that point you will say no gate, negotiating a much larger project with that client. Um, then giving them a little bit of slack probably wouldn't hurt your relationship and the chances of winning that new piece of work. Yeah. So just, you know, maybe that's me being a little bit... Well, I mean, we did... Um, when there was a sequel injection... I come on to that too. Oh, sorry. I'll sharpen <laughs> This is what happens when I yeah. don't have the notes in front of me. Um, but the, the main thing, if you're going to do that, if you are going to give a client a bit of slack and fix something, if it's, you know, it's a really quick job and it's like, oh, yeah, that looks a bit iffy, but it's not actually part of what yeah. we originally agreed, but do it anyway. But you must make sure that they know you're doing, you're doing it. You're doing Yes, yeah. exactly. Because otherwise you end up creating, you know, rod for your own back and they'll expect it every time. Yeah. Um, as Paul was alluding to, another recent example where we de- decided it was in our interest to fix a number of sites free of charge that were all way outside of their warranty, their 12-month warranty, uh, was when early versions of our CMS became vulnerable to a security risk. Uh, we could have insisted that the work was carried out, that the work we carried out was chargeable, uh, but we decided that having a bunch of broken sites was potentially more damaging to our reputation than worrying about chasing clients for the small cost of fixing the sites. Yeah. So common sense again. Uh, the second kind of main point associated with warranties is expectation, which is what Andy kind of alluded to in 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 his question. Um, it's yeah, what what the client expects of the warranty. Uh, I think there's a view um, that a lot of clients see a warranty as a, as a support agreement. Yeah. Um, we've often had calls that relate to CMS usage. For example, I can't remember how to input a news story on the site. Can you remind me? Yeah. <clears throat> Again, in this type of situation, common sense should rule. But if a client is continually asking support-related queries or is outside of the warranty period, then explain that you can either provide an estimate for the work uh, they're requesting or that they may wish to consider setting up a support agreement. This tends to focus, Shut them, up. focus their minds, <laughs> was the, what I was thinking. And some go, oh, okay, I didn't know I needed to do that. Yeah. What do we do? What are my options? We sort it out. They sign up a support yeah. agreement. Others go back and read the manual. Yeah. Um, uh, this can be occasionally met with a frosty reception, especially if you're no longer working with that particular client, but um, you're not being unreasonable in any, any way. You're simply charging for your time like everyone else in business. Yes. Um, to use an analogy, no one likes paying to have their car serviced, but equally we don't expect the garage to do it for free. Well, I don't know. I could, I could we can expect, expect them it. to. But, um, <laughs> you won't get it. <laughs> exactly. So, um, as with most things contract-related, make sure that you discuss what your warranty means with your new client before you start the work. Yeah. Concentrate on the fact that it's not a support agreement and discuss the potential need for a support agreement. Also mention that websites, like most things, do break sometimes, and often this is long after a warranty period has run out. Yeah. So, how did we conclude that we should have a 12-month warranty? Did we just pull that out of our backsides? We start. We started off having a much shorter warranty. Yeah, than it used that. to be six months, didn't it? It might even have started at three months. Oh, um, and it was kind of one of those <coughs> issues that came up with the clients. Of, you know, there were they want genuinely fixable bugs. Yeah. Six months after it's gone live, we're still working closely with the client. Yeah, uh, and I, we didn't. We took the common sense attitude 
uh, that I was talking about, but we kind of thought, well, that's a bit daft. You, most warranties for most things you buy yeah. are at least a year. Yeah. So yeah. that's why we picked that. Oh, okay. Figure. All right. Fair enough. That makes sense. Thank you. That was actually vaguely interesting. <laughs> vaguely. So, um, yeah, that about wraps up today's show. Kind of does. Which was a cool one, except for obviously our joke, which will be side-splitting and funny. Actually, you've you've had some good feedback on the jokes recently. You're going to like this. This is from Michael Ross. I think I read some of these out the other day. These are actual answers uh, from children in science exams. (laughs) And I think... I can't remember them. I think they're great. So here we go. Question. Name the four seasons. Answer. Salt, pepper, mustard and vinegar. (laughs) So we start. That's not the best one. The really good ones. How can you delay milk turning sour? (laughs) Keep it in the cow. (laughs) That's my favourite. I love that. Um, What happens to your body as you age? When you get old, so do your bowels, and you get intercontinental. (laughs) I particularly like that one. Oh, this was brilliant. Uh, What happens to a boy when he reaches puberty? He says goodbye to his boyhood and looks forward to his adultery. <laughs> Superb. I you had read that one before. No, no. I like that one. Oh, uh, anyway, how are the main parts of the body cap- uh, categorised, e.g. abdomen? Uh, the body is consisted into three parts, the brainium, the borax, and the ad- abdominal cavity. The brainium contains the brain, the borax contains the heart and lungs, and the abdominal cavity contains the five bowels, A, E, I, O, and U. I don't believe these are real. Of course they are. No, they are. Yes, they are. Everything's real that you read on the internet. Yeah, Yeah, just like everything you hear on this podcast is true. Okay, thank you very much for listening to this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it. And join us again next week Not when me. there will be a mystery guest. Yeah, I'll be back in three weeks' oh, time. shut up. I don't care. You know, I know, but I'm just saying I'll look forward to that Nobody day cares. In three weeks' time. Nobody three misses you whole when you're gone. weeks. I get emails when you're gone saying, God, oh, Why didn't so you get rid of him? Yeah. <laughs> hundreds of them. Hundreds and hundreds. Of hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, so um, see you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Hello, world of Boaz. It's like being on David Letterman. Boag world, Boag world.